Welcome to the One O'ahu Podcast. I'm Brandi Higa, and today is Thursday, January 25th, 2024. We're back this week with Mayor Rick Bangiardi. And Mayor, we got a little warm-up for the town hall tour. You recently held a community meeting out in Kahuku. The topic, a new pool and rec center. So what were some of your takeaways from that meeting? Well, before I even answer that, Brandy, let me just say, a month ago today was Christmas. It yes. feels like it was yesterday. You know, that's... <laughs> <laughs> the next time we do a podcast, it's going to be February already. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's hard to believe a whole month is come and gone. Exactly. Um, and that kind of speaks to how this year has started, but in a very positive way, which is a great segue back to your question. You know, we were out there the other night, and um, I didn't know exactly how many people might show up for this. At one point, I thought we were just going to have maybe a roundtable discussion with a couple of community leaders to kind of tell them and give them a status report. While we get out to Kahuku, as you know, because you were there with us, and it was not only packed, it was standing room only, and it was a highly engaged audience on top of that. And so that told me, which really didn't come as a surprise, but with great certainty, that our efforts, what we're trying to do, what we're planning to do, really is meaningful out there. And that was very gratifying right from the outset. So look, you know, we had some people get up there at the microphone, like anything you do in life, and quite honestly, there were some rumors out there that had to do with us, you know, knocking down houses. I mean, crazy speculative stuff or concerns about water, et cetera. And we were only out there to tell them, look, we've now allocated money to begin the planning stage. We have a, an agreement with AES uh, for their contribution portion of about $4 million. Once you get through this planning stage, though, we've already be, begun or will begin to do, um, we'll have an idea of that. Uh, and, and, and so we can then put together a budget on what this whole thing will cost. Uh, um, and, you know, and I told them that as far as I'm concerned, we have five years left. I know it sounds presumptuous. It's an election year. And sometime well before the end of our, our leaving, uh, that we'll be breaking ground on this thing. We're going to really force to make it a reality. But nothing can really happen realistically for the next two-plus years um, because of this process, you know, that you have to go through. But at the end, end of the day, we're sincere. It's real. We're spending serious money in the planning stages. We're going to keep the community engaged, involved along the way. No surprises, excitement. Wish we could have done it with a magic wand and had it happen yesterday. But for all intents and purposes, what this will contribute to not just Kahuku, but that section of the island will be significant. And so I want to be sure we do it right. We do it well. And it would be every, you know, and that's where we are. So was it really, I thought it was a very positive meeting. It was, like I said, there were always a couple of people. The very next day, I got several text messages from people that were in the audience who didn't speak at the microphone, local style, I get that, not everybody's going to go up there, who just outpouring of appreciation and gratitude. It was very heartfelt. And so I know if we can bring this into reality, it'll be a great thing. That's a long answer to your question, but that's no, no. how I feel about yeah, it. Yeah, and, and I agree with you that, you know, we were surprised by some of the questions that did come up. People thinking that they were going to lose their homes. Mm-hmm. People thinking that we were going to take away space from already designated right. park use for, you know, baseball fields, I, soccer fields. I thought the gentleman that got up there, the elder statesman, if you will, in the beginning, I think his name was Gregory, and I, don't, I don't think he would mind my saying that, brought out the fact that there was a master plan right. done in 1971 that called for a 50-meter pool in a rec center. So somewhere in there, when we get into the details on our own planning, we're not looking at encroaching. I mean, they, you know, some people put their kids up there to speak, thinking we're going to take away their ball mm-hmm. field. And, 
you know, I mean, that was mostly what we we're hearing, and to me, it was just a lot of, you know, supposition or or incorrect information. And I think that's the, really, I think that's the reason why we went out there in retrospect, even though I wasn't anticipating that was to not only include them but to kind of quiet the, the kind of things that you know they get they bubble up like like you started to say a couple of things that people said were almost unimaginable like how are you getting that where, where, where's that coming from you know yeah i know how much that means to you this open line of communication um and the access to your cabinet members right which is the intent of the town hall tour that we're going to do later on this year right um and i know how much you value that with your background in media but a department that's really getting criticized now and i i hate to ask this question but i know that it's fair to your listeners um, the department that's getting criticized is our Honolulu Police Department. What under your power can you do to yeah. kind of fix that, to help that? To Well, you know, I, I would say I want to talk candidly here, rightfully so. I mean, it deserves criticism because we're failing. We're failing in our communication efforts. And, you know, we've, we've been doing a lot of encouragement since we've been in office and since our new chief has come into being, uh, but almost seemingly to no avail. And uh, it's become frustrating. And now it's, it's implicated me, to be really honest with you. It was an editorial done just the other day um, on the January 1st, um, you know, that whole incident. I mean, but I had no knowledge at all that there were two other people who were, you know, uh, apprehended by the police, beaten up, hurt substantially, et cetera. And I learned about that on the January 17th from the media. And, 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 and this lawsuit was not incidental. And being confronted by the media saying, I don't know, I haven't read the paper yet, and an honest answer is not how I want to be perceived as mayor, or not our cabinet, or our team, as you just said, on transparency. So that's only one. I could rattle off several incidents like that. And so as of this recording, I have yet to resolve that with our chief of police, but I fully intend to do so. It's unacceptable to me uh, in, in a very big way because it, uh, it negates a lot of the effort we're making and what we're trying to do to rebuild trust and confidence in our, our team. And you know that because you're an integral part of this team. And um, this just, you know, they don't get to be a separate country. They don't get to make up their own rules. There are fundamentals that they're really required to do and they're not doing. And, and it's, I don't know how else to say it. So it's an unacceptable situation. The next time we have a conversation on this matter, uh, I'll maybe be able to tell you what got resolved. But at this point right now, I could not be any more dissatisfied. A sister issue that kind of came up with this topic is the access to first responder radio transmission, specifically for folks like the news media that can potentially help keep people out of harm's way during emergencies. Um, What's your position? Because now you've, you've been on both ends of this. Yeah, well, I had a position before I came into office. I had the same position when I came into office. The problem was that uh, we were barely in office, and we, you know, and we were yet again in another transition with our chief of police. And then we were in an interim situation for a whole year right. going through the hiring process. And, and then I had nothing to say in the hiring process. And then when Chief Logan came in, I told him, look, I don't want to usurp your authority and I want to be able to work with you, but this is where I come from. This is what I believe in. And he said he would take that into account. We try to work it through. The long and the short of it is they just got more dug in over time and it became apparent they didn't want to do it their way. I've said all along that I don't want to usurp anything from not only whoever's in charge of the police department, but certainly compromising perhaps, if that's what their belief was, anything that they do in police work. 
but that said, I don't believe that's the case. You know, this is about 21st century policing. Uh, this is, you know, in regards to a community that um, they deserve to know facts. They don't have to say anything that's going to compromise an investigation. I think that that's easy to hide behind. So we're at disagreement. We're at serious disagreement right now, I think, on our responsibility of the police department to communicate with the community on matters that relate to them. There is a need to know, uh, and they don't, they don't get to hide behind saying, oh, it's under investigation. That's, that's, that doesn't work. One of the other January headlines uh, in the news cycle was actually the news itself. The Star Advertiser entered a restructuring to reduce debt and then positioned the company for a possible sale. What does all that mean? Well, they're going to sell the company, and there's new owners. Um, it's called the Carp- called the Carpenter Group out of uh, somewhere in the south. I want to say, I want to say Alabama, but I think I'm wrong. Um, and I'm about to meet them uh, with Dennis Francis, the current publisher, and hope that he will continue as publisher. And that's all I know. But I think the paper is being sold, uh, and you know. I can remember only yesterday um, being in, in media and you know and watching, if you will, the, the the trend, the evolution. We were part of it at Hawaii News Now and digital technology and digital platforms and understanding the understanding really, quite honestly, the triumph of personal media over mass media, and then seeing the decline in newspaper readership, seeing newspapers closing all over the country, admittedly moving to digital formats, but just really kind of quite different uh, and when all of that gets said and done I, you know our local newspaper uh, seemed to get thinner and thinner you know and, uh, and and then they had to go through in their own survival a number of open public layoffs and everybody's aware of that I just think the newspaper business is really tough I, I can remember and this is probably within the last 10 years and it was some time ago reading reading that the the uh, Newspaper readership in the country, the median age was like at 68, mm-hmm. you know? And there is a certain, something to be said for that demography, because I'm from that generation, still like to pick up a newspaper, do I so. Do yeah, <laughs> and some people do, but you know, young people today, they don't even know what a telephone is. They don't even know what a camera is. They think everything is in that what they in their iPhone, you know what I mean? I, 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 you know, we, we joke about it, but there's so much truth to that. And the last place they go, when you have all kinds of apps, admittedly, if they want news and information, if they're not getting it from social media, which tends to be, you know, is they're not, they're not reading newspaper. I think it's a rare young person that reads a newspaper. Kudos to you for being one. But then again, you are also in media. Um, it's just so that's a dec- declining business model that um, I'm sure there are ways to survive, and that's what I'm hoping is going to happen. But um, it's uh, it's been a it's been a long time in the making. A lot of others have said goodbye, and so you can only hope that this group will have some kind of resources or whatever. I think here in Honolulu, we definitely want a newspaper. Yeah. It was already enough of a transition when we lost the advertiser. Well, the advertiser merged with the Star Bulletin, yeah, and you know, and so I think having a newspaper, uh, not just because of my personal likes, uh, is just part of what's healthy for a community. Yeah, so with this evolution, Mara, since you've been through something like this before, what does that mean for, like, the local stories, right, the local reporters that work for the paper? Well, I think that'll be, you know, when I meet the owners, one of the first questions I'm going to ask them, because yeah. you want that little editorial. You don't want a newspaper that's all syndicated columns. Right. You know, that's the whole idea of local media is, and that's really, quite honestly, and, you know, we all know, everybody does, local, national, you know, um, 
regional in this case, you know, would be all of our islands statewide, if you will. Um, There's a real need for that. It's important, I I believe. It's woven into the fabric of community and how people live. So, um, you know, I used to always say, I know that legally you can't take a newspaper article in a court of law. It's considered not to be factually correct. But for those of us, and you too, who've had their name in print, you save those articles, you know. <laughs> you know, this is sort of a thing with people, and they get that kind of recognition and whatever. And you know, it is it is meaningful. Is it, I, look, we just need to keep people informed about our local issues, and the newspaper fits nicely into that. You had just mentioned people in their sixties, and and maybe they remember something like the Kodak Hula Show. Well, well, we're come back next month, right? Yeah, come Kilo next Hana month. Hula Show makes its debut yeah. at the show. Why is that important? Uh, well, you know, for one thing, it. Um, it was a tremendous success here for more than six plus decades. It was an opportunity to share when people would come from all over the world, you know, um, our cultural identity, if you will, through dance and song and all the other things that would go on. Mm-hmm. And then Kodak, it sponsored it, went broke. I mean, you know, they folded their company. I don't know exactly what happened. I think there was something in a bankruptcy. I, I don't know how it ended, but Kodak. And they lost that sponsorship, obviously, and then, uh, which made sense, right? It would make great sense that Kodak, which I, again, I grew up with people with cameras and Kodak film and Kodak cameras and all of that, um, that they um, would sponsor something like that. It was so iconic, the beauty of Hawaii and the dances and everything. Was, and so then a couple of families, I believe, tried to pick that up and sustain, they couldn't sustain it. So. You know, for as much as we talk about attacking the future, you know, now this being the fifth fifth year of the third decade of the 21st century in trying to modernize the city, there are some things that are just mainstays. So this is like, to me, opportunity to bring it back, albeit with a different name, in partnership with CNHA, in partnership with everything that people have talked about with respect to regenerative tourism, sharing a cultural identity, and making it accessible, a free show in Waikiki Park, to take nothing away from the other places people may go, other vendors, other kind of things. This is a cool thing to be able to make available, and I want to thank Roy Takujo for his vision, promoter, CNHA, Kuiya Lewis, uh, for his vision, his alignment, and uh, quite honestly, I, I'm very proud that the city can help bring this back. The Tom Moffat Waikiki Shell is a really special venue. It shouldn't be dormant most of the time. We only selected you know, things that happen there on occasion. We should be celebrating those grounds uh, and allowing people to share in, in that. And there's a great opportunity to get that going. I want to tail on that because often when we talk about tourism, we talk about diversifying tourism. And there's an interesting commentary in the Honolulu Civil Beat recently about film production in Hawaii yeah. and how we need action here on Oahu in Hawaii in general to keep our future generation, especially our future generation of creatives here in the state. And, and you've been part of that narrative before. Yeah, I think I, I want to take a very strong position on this. In fact, I um, am telling people at the legislature who I understood there was some legislators and again, these are island-wide people, I mean statewide people, they may not have the same feel, the pulse of this on Oahu, uh, that we need to maintain the tax credits, if anything, and in, in increase them. I'm going to L.A. in February to meet again with major studios. Uh, I've already been doing so, uh, even over the course of the past year. You know, the film production in Hawaii 
is um, a nice business unto itself right now. It's about $400 million a year. You know, we have, we've have we run through and done a number of first-run cycle shows, going back to both of the 5.0s, both of the Magnums, NCIS Hawaii now, uh, different film film productions. But we're really limited to the facilities over at Diamond Head, other than what they can shoot on the road. But what a film studio allows you to do is a lot more extensive and really in the production of completed films. So I'm a strong proponent for us knowing full well that they're interested parties in investing well over $100 million to come to Hawaii and build additional sound stages for us here. It'll only be a source of great jobs. It's a clean business. I actually believe for Hawaii, we could be doing a billion dollars a year. And for everything that we heard during the campaign about diversifying the economy and trying to add different revenue streams in, this is not really a diversification as much as it is building on our existing assets, but taking maybe more advantage of the potential we have. Um, so, and, and production companies would love to film in Hawaii if, if, if they had the access. Uh, and if one believes, you know, not only is our physical beauty, but to what you just said, the creatives that are here, we could really develop a talent base here of really a lot of good local people. Many of, we have a number of people who grew up here who are working as creatives, if you will, to use your term, on the West Coast and elsewhere, just because those opportunities aren't here. So it'd be an opportunity even to bring some home, to develop people, great teaching, more of things coming from Hawaii, just adding to our economic base. All This is just says win-win all the way around. It's not like we're some small town in the middle of nowhere and we're trying to convince Hollywood to come to us. They, we've been turning away business. We've been kicking away business. One of probably the most dramatic thing in the last year, I think the production is complete now, both Jason Momoa and The Rock, both of whom have become iconic individuals in the film industry, in the world really for that matter, um, did major productions which were shot down in New Zealand. Yeah. And that, that work could have happened here. And I, and I know that um, Jason Momoa's production they were spending Game of Thrones money. I mean, that's that's as good as it gets, you know what I mean, from the standpoint of productions. And so we, we're not and they're doing it down there in New Zealand, and the story's about Hawaii. It's not about, like, it's about New Zealand. Yeah. And so that, that doesn't seem to be right. So if we get smart about this, understand what it is the state and the city need to do to attract these businesses through tax credits and other exemptions here, the revenue part of it on a going forward basis will inure to us, and it's very healthy. Uh, there hasn't been a widespread announcement about this yet, but the city's partnering up once again with the Hawaii Food Bank. Yeah. This was something that was um, going on pre-pandemic, but now once again, an opportunity to give back. Yeah, you know, the food bank's an amazing thing. I had the privilege of serving on the board for 18 years when I was in television, and we, we used to televise the annual food drives, and then we modified that. We did countless stories in the news. Uh, we also participated as a television station among our employees every year. People f- took a lot of pride in that, and we kept it ever mindful. But all I can say in this post-COVID environment, with economic impacts being what they are uh, for people, that the need for food is probably greater now than ever, and especially with people putting disproportionate amounts of their earned income uh, into just rent. I had, a, I had a guy tell me just yesterday, that um, he makes $2,600 a month take home. He has a family of this four of them. And when he gets done, that's not, no, that's not his take home, that's his rent for a two bedroom, I'm sorry. I don't know his take home, but when he said when he gets done, paying his rent, he has $70 a, $70 a paycheck to feed his family. Seven zero seven zero seventy. So he goes to the food bank um, 
because he's keeping a roof over his kid's head. They go to public school. There's a two-bedroom apartment. You know, he's, he's got a good job. He's working hard. But, I mean, that just gives you an example, right? So the food bank gives out a million pounds of food a month, 12 million pounds a year. Um, and that feeds about 140 to 150,000 people. And actually, the need is greater than that. These are other resources. This is just the Hawaii Food Bank. So, you know, when you think about that, that's really amazing. Or look at an example like that of people who are working hard, basically making it to paycheck and don't even have quite enough food. One of the things that's been challenging and pointed out in our conversation is that while the inflation of 7%, if you will, at one point has now started to decline, food prices have continued to stay high. As we've heard, you know, the food prices right now for the average consumer are around 25 26% up. And people don't have pay raises that have gone up that way. And everybody needs to eat and buy other things that you buy in food. So um, what they've asked this time, and this has been the adjustment from when I was on the board, is not only contribute food, but if people contribute money, that their effective buying income is considerable. I think they gave us an example. If I, you know, the price I would pay for two cans of tuna fish at a supermarket they could buy 14 cans of tuna fish, you know, um, with their leverage buying power. So they're, they're looking for both uh, food raising and fundraising um, to just try to feed our population. And, and in my experience over all those years, you know, you realize that um, there's maybe nothing more noble that you could do than feed somebody who's really hungry. You know, food scarcity and the lack of food security, especially for young kids and stuff, is... Um, it's just one of those really sad things. So I, we, we want to contribute. I'm, I'm glad the city's going to get back into it. We were always very active before, uh, and I'm hoping for, you know, a lot of why. Well, I'm I'm kind of counting on it really that knowing the, our employees that people will be pretty generous about this. You also recently met with the mayor of Incheon, and for those that aren't familiar, what gets done in these sister city visits, and, and how do you want to see? us foster those relationships, utilize those relationships mm. on a going forward basis? Well, you know, that's a great question. And quite honestly, it takes a lot of time to do that. Yeah. And um, we've been trying to, you know, cultivate them to be something more than just beyond ceremonial. Yeah. Now, admittedly, with the mayor of Inchon, um, he's a pretty astute guy. And uh, they were here to, they, they gifted the city of Honolulu, this incredibly beautiful statue down on Inhar Park on South King Street. Um, which anybody going down there would see that there are f four major statues in the park. This is the most recent one. It's all out of stainless steel. It's tall. It's beautiful. It's a, you know. So, what, I think more than anything, they want to foster that cultural identity. You know, I mean, we have a lot of Korean American theater populations around. I think somewhere between sixty and seventy thousand. So they want to keep. And people tend to be, especially if they're immigrants, they want that tie with their country. So there's something that they do there for that element that's really good. Uh, and I remember that from my own upbringing, you know. Um, but I think if we could do anything city to city, it would be probably, if we do commerce, it would be great. I think that's a bridge too far. But if we could do the cultural exchanges with students and different things and being aware of each other and actually, you know, have a sense of reciprocity, that would be great. Honestly, I think coming in, being mayor, if I did nothing else but that, that would be a full-time job. And that's the part that I feel guilty about because there is that potential to really kind of cultivate this. And I've challenged some of the people on our staff to help us with that, especially in the Mayor's Office of Culture and the Arts. Um, but it's really about sharing a bit of Hawaii with the world at the same time, you know, embracing those different cultures. 
Right now, thousands here on Oahu and actually across the state are, are in training for the 40th annual Great Aloha Run, now put on by Hawaii Pacific Health. But you've run your share of road races. Yeah. Um, so as a you runner, former runner, whatever we want to call you, yeah. what is your advice and encouragement, your message <laughs> for those participating in this year's Great Aloha Well, you know, for those, the good news about the Great Aloha Run is it's short enough, right? It's eight and a half miles roughly that you could walk it if you had to and still not take all day to do it or be too beat up like some people do at the marathon. My advice is if you're intending on running it, hopefully you've run eight miles more than a couple of times. Be in condition. Make sure you bring good footwear. And if you have to walk, there's no shame in walking. You just want to finish it. But I think it's a kind of goal that most people can. Look, I think the Great Hello Run is just set up to be a really kind of a fun thing in the month of February. And... Um, and I think that it allows a lot of people to do something seemingly athletic where they themselves may not feel like they're athletes. It's a great way to get out and participate in a community event and get some good exercise. You said athletes were coming off of Polynesian Bowl week. And I don't think people realize this high school talent that comes to Oahu, really from all around the world for this week. Yeah, we had, um, we had over 15 of the top kids ranked in the country. We had, I forget, 11 five-star recruits this year and uh, you know these well let me just give you an example uh, Puka Nakua mm -hmm. for the Los Angeles Rams yep. just broke all the receiving records right in, in the NFL for a rookie he just played here a couple of years ago in the Polynesian Bowl and there's a whole bunch of young men that just played here uh, and since now the game the game itself I remember we did our first telecast and it was involved right from the inception we did it on ESPN3, which is pretty much a streaming device to a very small group. After just one year, we were able to elevate that uh, and got that to ESPN2. And then from there, we jumped over to CBS College Sports Network with a distribution of 66 million homes. And, and, and then the next, well, after a couple of years, we got it on now. It's the NFL only network. NFL network. Yeah. That said, also, in popularity in the first year we were competing with a couple of major kids graduating from high school can only participate in a maximum of two postseason all-star games and there were a couple of perennial games in there where every kid would hope to play in because if they had a scholarship grade but if they didn't it was a great place to go and earn one it was also a chance you know for coaches or whatever to see kids competing at a very high level because of the caliber of the kids on the all-star team so, you know, that was a great thing. Well, the Polynesian Bowl has moved into, like, first place and all of that, not only being carried by the NFL Network, but coming to Hawaii, the prestige of the game. They've, they've continued to ramp up the uniforms every year, which has been great. And, um, and a lot of these guys have gone on and played at the biggest and best schools in the country and now are playing on Sunday. So all of that is linked together. So I think we don't have the Pro Bowl here anymore, but this Polynesian Bowl amongst high school kids, especially kids – Take a Polynesian kid, and I've been in enough banquets to listen to them. They come from Illinois, and they've been the lone Polynesian, if you will, mm -hmm. in their community. And now all of a sudden they get out here, and it's like a life-changing experience for them. It's been really great to watch. And the other part of that, and really one of the most important parts, and why I got involved right in the very beginning, was it allows our local kids, the kids who make all state their senior year, an opportunity to play with guys of this caliber from all over the country at the highest level in the pursuit of excellence. Also in this game, 
we had had some kids who didn't have scholarships actually get scholarships from playing at it. So for me, it's a great opportunity for our local kids as well as a great recruiting thing on the highest level and to create a sporting event that's all about excellence here in Oahu uh, and then have it manifest as these guys go on and distinguish themselves in not only their college careers but now their pro careers, knowing that we're a part of that when it comes to the game of football, I think is very cool. You were also recently at the Brotherhood kickoff, jumping a level to college now. Yeah. And I've actually had a couple people come up to me and say, what is that? What is Brotherhood? Yeah. We should probably have Timmy Chang on to explain it. I, you know, I, I actually think from a marketing standpoint, I broaden it out, but Timmy's of a belief in that. I think what they, try, what they were trying to, you know, capture is that when Timmy stepped into the job, we're you know, just finishing with COVID as far as people being allowed to go to games. He succeeded a guy who came here and got fired unceremoniously after two years of failure. But, you know, and, and there was this sort of thing of his being a young, untested head coach, not only him and his staff sort of against the world or against the odds because of where the program was, uh, but it was also this, this mindset that um, they, they needed to hunker down and prove something to somebody. And so what they wanted to do is draw down on, you know, that f sense of team and sense of brotherhood and um, kind of the us against us, us against the world thing, you know, and he was at the same time being disadvantaged because the world of college football, even as we record this show, is changing on seemingly by the day with respect to the portal, NIL monies, Guys going in, going out, rotation of coaches, transferring of players, all this stuff. That's hard enough. And so I think they were looking to create a sense of identity, strong identity by the Brotherhood uh, as part of a marketing tool so that anybody coming here wouldn't feel like they're a lone ranger, that they're part of something bigger than themselves. I think that's what it means. And so this program, I know that they've partnered with, with restaurants before. What, what does that do for the players? Well, probably feeds them. <laughs> yeah, you know, I would imagine if you're going to partner with them, you know. So the players are invited. To look, look, in these, in, in the, yeah, look. It used to be only yes in the NCAA. You couldn't go to a restaurant and and have a proprietor, you know, pick up a tuna fish sandwich because it was considered, you know, against the rules. Yeah. Today, these kids go in, you know, or a full course meal if the guy wants it. This is great. So you know, I, I think. That's what some of these places are doing. They're, they're helping, in, in, in some cases, they're not only writing checks, but they're doing some in-kind services. And I think that that's all about that. Look, this is a very different game. I'm not in favor of these rule changes. I mean, the NIL, I'm not denying that people, kids, young kids should be getting money, but it's, 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 it, it doesn't have limits. It's wide open. And, you know, and so people with lots of resource obviously in a driver's seat and that creates one more disadvantage along with a whole bunch of other things uh, as far as coaching in Hawaii is concerned especially not the least of which is lack of a stadium so then you got this transfer portal which is I think depending on who you talk to I think it's one of the most insidious things you got because it just makes every kid a free unrestricted free agent even the NFL doesn't do that and so um, you know kids can leave and I think, and I talked to the team the other day at that event and told them that there was so much to learn in the context of them being players because they were there and there was some mentoring going around. I said, you will have that life ultimately, but while you're now still playing, as young as you are, realize where you are 
and look to this game that can teach you so much. And part of that learning is to, I think, be in a place for some time and not just be a rolling stone so you can you can learn about what it means to sacrifice and work hard and overcome adversity and fall in love with your fellow team players, play unselfishly, be a great team, all that stuff. I just worry if, if kids' college careers become so fragmented, they don't get that kind of benefit you get from longevity and working on a team, not just being part of that team, working through your own personal challenge, whatever that adversity is, earning that starting position, playing big on Saturdays for your team, all of that, but for your team. I think one of the great lines, great lines I ever heard, um, your boss, Scott Humber, said to me, and it was only recently, we were talking about the coaching changes in the NFL and the player changes or whatever, and then he talked about the fact of, um, you know, we're talking about the love of players. I remember we were commenting on some of the postscript that we heard after the Michigan game. It was, you know, a lot of those guys were there for a long time, for the, for four or five years. And he said he remembers uh, Danny Amendola, who used to play for the Patriots, and um, was being interviewed. And he said, you know, you know, asking him about Belichick and Brady and what it was like for him. He said, you know, he said we uh, we worked for Bill Belichick, but we played for Tom Brady. And I always thought that's it. That's what you want among the in the teams. They the kids, the guys, they play for each other. They that's what the essence of it. You need time to cultivate that. That's that kind of thing is is earned after a lot of I hate to sound so cliche, blood, sweat, and tears together, joys of victory, agonies of defeat, all of that stuff. You need time and place at a young age. And the pros. They're mercenaries. It's a little bit different. But even Amendola saying that about Brady and Belichick and the difference you got. Because you know they, they knew they were playing with one of the all-time greats, if not the greatest, and, and you can get that. But that's what I'm afraid of. If these kids can transfer so readily, they'll never have time to cultivate those deep-seated feelings about guys they play with for several years together, those kind of memories, the, all the other stuff. It's just the, they're sort of like free agents. And, I think, and I'm not trying to be too cynical, but always taking a great team sport and turning it almost into, for those people who would have that ability to move, a sport of individual contributors. And I just think that robs the game and actually robs the fans too. I think, you know, it'd be nice to see a kid, you know, be there and feel that he's loyal to the school, the fans are loyal to him and like that. You know, last week the owner of Sports Illustrated announced that they were laying off the magazine's entire staff. It appears that they're closing up for good. So what did that magazine mean to you wow. as someone with such a strong sports background? Yeah. Well, you know, that was sort of uh, sort of the, I want to, I'm hesitant to use the word. Membership. Yeah, I, yeah, I did for a lot of years. I haven't had one in a couple of years. You know, I've had no time to read it. I can barely catch ESPN highlights these days, but that mm-hmm. kind of speaks to the dynamic at play, right? You've got digital technology and, and you've got, you know, a sports channel that's also gone through, by the way, a lot of layoffs, a lot right. of cuts, because of it gotten so fragmented with other more regional, local, whatever, social media, all these competing influences. The thought of there not being a Sports Illustrated um, is, is to me, in my lifetime, very sad, you know, um, because that was, you know, at one point when I had time to read it, that you so looked forward to that, and it was 
talked about and quoted. It was a shared experience. You did so many great stories over the years. You got insights. But today you have all of that stuff available in different formats, you know? I can't tell you how many YouTube, seven, eight-minute video YouTube things I've watched on. I just watched one the other night on C.J. Stroud on players that if it was in Sports Illustrated, I would have read the bio. It would have been maybe four or five pages. Now I just sit back and watch and listen to him actually speak himself and you know these seven eight minute interviews they really do a nice job and that's just one platform so that's just where the world is going and then these guys themselves are all kind of social media stars themselves and so they've kind of used to be a thing where if you were playing well and you wouldn't get interviewed and be in Sports Illustrated, that would be a very big deal. Today, these guys just go on, they have their own, they're tweeting, they're doing, they all got their own publications almost, you know? It's, the dynamics have really changed. So I'm sorry to see Sports Illustrated go. I'm, I'm starting to feel very old, Brandy. You know, Aloha Stadium has come and gone in my lifetime, and now Sports Illustrated is going away. Wow. Wow. Well, let's see if you can comment on this one. I don't think you're that old. Usher is performing at the ah, Super Bowl halftime know, yeah. show. You're excited for that, right? Yeah, he's a cool guy. Yeah, he's a cool guy. Usher's good. He's he's a very talented guy. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Mary, this is the One Oahu podcast. So, for one final thought. Well, as we, <laughs> one month as we open up the show today after Christmas, we're off to a fast start. I am very optimistic. The world has never been seemingly a more challenging place, and we have our issues here at home. I have a, but, you know, we're all about our dedication to serving the city and the wonderful people who live here. So, you know, uh, we all have it within our power. And I've said this is different community groups to help make this a better place. It's not just government. And I want to remain very optimistic, very hopeful uh, that we get a lot of good things done this year. And I hope that people share in that spirit. And let's go for it. Mayor, thank you for your time. You're welcome. And just a reminder, this year's State of the City Address is set for March 14th at 6.30 p.m. Mark your calendars, and we'll have much more on this year's speech in the weeks leading up. Thank you for listening, and until next time, aloha. Aloha.